Well, this morning we continue uh, week two of our look at the uh, book of Habakkuk. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Habakkuk. It's between Nahum and Zephaniah. And I just admit I had to look that up, that it was between Nahum and Zephaniah. I'm terrible on getting those minor prophets in order. You can judge me. It's okay. Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to read the entire first chapter of Habakkuk. We're going to so circle back a little bit to some of the stuff we looked at last week. And then we'll read into chapter 2, verse 1, because it's a little bit of a strange chapter break in, in Habakkuk. And so uh, let us give our, our careful attention to the reading of God's word beginning in Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations, and see wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, and their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep up like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. You, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices And is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. All right. Well, last week, again, we began a new sermon series looking at Habakkuk. This is that short Old Testament book of of prophecy. It's a minor prophet. If you remember, minor uh, just means short. It's a short book of prophecy. And and if you didn't catch last week's message, I do encourage you uh, to take a listen to to get some of that historical backdrop. What's going on with this book since it's maybe a book that's not too familiar to so many of us. 
Uh, let me just do a really quick recap of some Old Testament history to kind of get us operating on the same um, wavelength here in terms of what's going on in Habakkuk. Uh, I'll start with King David. I think most of us know, kind of remember who King David is. He's the greatest king in Israel. He's the king after God's own heart. Every king that follows David is going to be measured according to David, which is remarkable when you think about how flawed and sinful David is. And yet he's the idyllic king. David has a son. His name is Solomon. Under Solomon, Israel is at its greatest. There's peace. Um, Economically, it's absolutely flourishing. It is a nation that other nations look at and say, we want to be like them. But then under Solomon's sons, the kingdom of Israel is divided. Basically a civil war kind of thing. And you have the northern kingdom Israel, two tribes. You have the southern kingdom Judah, ten tribes. Israel is the story of king after king of progressive, uh, not really progressive, just ongoing wickedness and idolatry. And, and God sends the prophets to them. That's what the prophets are in our Bible. Uh, and they're saying, repent and turn back to the Lord. And Israel says, no. And after 200 years, Assyria, the great ancient power, comes and makes Israel no more. By the way, did you hear that? 200 years, when you think of God's patience. 200 years of sending prophets saying, turn to me. And then eventually they fall to Assyria. 100 years after Israel falls to Assyria, the southern kingdom, Judah, more of a mixture of good kings and bad kings. David's name comes up a lot more because that's kind of where the lineage of David goes. They do a little bit better. It takes 300 years For them to fall to the next great ancient superpower, Assyria has been displaced by this point with Babylon. Babylon is the great empire of the ancient world. Enter Habakkuk. He's writing about a decade before Judah falls to Babylon. And Babylon comes up in our text, or the Chaldeans that we will talk about. If you remember from last week, Habakkuk looks out at this people of God, um, the the nation of Judah, the the church. It's all the same thing. It's all God's people. And he is confronted and overwhelmed by the sin and injustice and oppression that he sees. How long, Lord, must I cry for help and you not respond? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. This is the idea that the people are always at each other's throats. There's no peace. There's no shalom. God, how long? How long until your kingdom comes as it's supposed to come? How long until we live in your restored kingdom of peace? Habakkuk is that kind of strange prophet because part of his vocation, part of his task is he's going to stand in for us asking God the questions we either have or we should have. Because if you're paying attention, our prayers should sound like Habakkuk's prayers. God, what are you doing? How long are you going to stand idly by not doing anything? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? God, when will you do something? I think especially for our young people, if you're in middle school, if you're in high school, or a little bit older than that, this is a, you need to know there's a book in your Bible like Habakkuk. Because you're going to open your eyes and you're going to see a world that that maybe doesn't make sense. You're going to see a world and you're going to say, "Does, does, does all of this match up to what I get in church? And yet God gives us these books in our, in our Bibles to affirm, no, these are the good questions to ask. The most disturbing thing is to say everything's fine. 
Uh, we need to know their books in the Bible like this. And Habakkuk gives us these questions. It's okay to question. It gives us answers, not answers that maybe satisfy us and, and give us exactly what we're looking for, but, but answers that I think perplex us and confound us more. Um, but it also gives us this foundation of faith. The illustration I've, I've given before is, you know, when we come into the worship service, this is not like an escape from the real world. You're doing it all wrong. Um, if you're just like watching the news every day, getting discouraged, then you come to church looking for, for like some, some, uh, some, some good news. You're doing it all wrong. Don't watch that much news, first of all. Second of all, uh, church is not a blindfold. It's not an escape. It's a flare gun. The word of God's a flare gun. In the middle of a dark desert, you, you blast that flare up and you see the darkness illuminated. And more than just the darkness illuminated, you also see hope illuminated. Habakkuk is a flare gun. This morning, we pick up where we left off last week in our introduction. My three points which are printed for you in your orders of worship, in your bulletins. Uh, first of all, it's the troubling silence of God. Secondly, it's the, the troubling answer of God. You might even say it's the even more troubling answer of God. And then finally, we'll look at the troubled prophet's faith. All right, so first of all, the troubling silence of God. And again, this is just kind of going over what we looked at last week. God's word gives us these examples of saints who have experienced life in much the same way that we experience it. Habakkuk joins so many of the Psalms or the book of Job in bringing doubt and bringing confusion and bringing frustration and anger to God. God, do you see what I'm seeing? And if you do, when are you going to do something about it? Have you ever felt like God is silent? A little too silent. Have you ever felt like God is indifferent and disengaged to the suffering in this world? Have you ever questioned God's goodness? Well, if you have, here are entire books of the Bible with others who have gone before us and who have had those same concerns, those same problems. Again, this oracle, you could also translate that Hebrew word oracle as burden, which is this beautiful double meaning because he does receive kind of a, that, that word directly from God, but he also carries this heavy burden. Uh, he stands in for us, and he asks God, what's going on? Will you just watch this oppression? What are you waiting for? And yet, though Habakkuk is confounded, he's, he's, he's troubled by God's silence, he's teaching us a lot about faith. He's teaching us a lot about what it means to be faithful. The key here is that Habakkuk, seeing his people, Judah, acting with wickedness and evil and, and, and feels the, the silence of God in light of this wickedness. And so what does he do? What's the point here? Is that he goes to God with his frustration. And that's everything. This is providing us with this example of a real relationship between this prophet and his God. What is your biggest struggle in your Christian walk with the Lord? I think for many of us, if not the majority of this room, I think it, we'd probably say prayerfulness. We don't pray. Now, I know most of you, and I know some of you pray well, 
But you would also say it hasn't always been that way. You would say there are seasons of my life where, no, I've, I've, been, I've been pretty prayerless. So at least all of us in this room who, who, are, who are trying to walk with Jesus, who are, who are trying to faithfully follow the Lord, we would all confess this struggle to pray. It's the first thing to get off the list, isn't it? It's the first thing. You wake up knowing everything you have to do in that day, and the first thing that gets bumped is this idea of, of coming to God with this act of dependence and of neediness and not just getting to the to-do list that needs to happen. It's the first thing that we shove off the list. Now, this changes a little bit when we experience times of trials. Maybe you can think of, of scary times where all of a sudden you saw your prayer life boost, right? And you're so confronted with, with your, your concerns. You're so confronted with fear that you are praying all of the time. I've been there, and, I, and I've prayed, God, can I, can I pray like this when, think, when times are good? We know what that's like. But what if the suffering continues? What if it goes on and on? Well, we start to lose the prayerfulness, and we start to grow with our frustration. We start to get angry with God. We start to get frustrated. We start to get angry with our circumstances and the season of life we find ourselves in. We get angry and the voice of doubt increases. We start to lose sight of God's goodness and faithfulness. And again, we start to get angry with God. Now what I mean by getting angry with God is not that we're, all of us go out into the middle of a rainy night and start shaking our fists at the heavens. No, we just start to get really bitter. And we start to get resentful. And we start to get frustrated with where we find ourselves in our lives, which of course really is just anger at God because he could snap his fingers and remove us from those circumstances, but he's keeping, them in us, in, in, uh, keeping us in them. And so we, we develop bitterness and resentment about where we are in life, our jobs, our relationships, our financial situation, whatever it is. Have you ever been there? So think about being angry. When's a time that you've just been red hot angry? It's one thing to seethe by yourself. It's one thing, maybe if you're angry at somebody else, you, you rehearse in your car as you're driving alone like what you'd love to say to that person if you had the opportunity or what you wish you would have said that really would have stung, that really would have hurt the other person. Or you can go before God and you can say, Father, I am so angry. And there's not a pious prayer to be had. Um, there's not a, you know, cleaning up your language before God. It's going to God and saying, I am so angry. You start to get distracted and you come back and say, I'm so angry. And what do you think God says? God says, I know you are. I know you are. And now we can get to work. Confide in me. Cling to me. Well, all of that's kind of what Habakkuk is. Habakkuk gives us this beautiful example of what one writer calls faithful doubt. You see, Habakkuk isn't complaining about God. He's complaining to God. It's something similar. Now, there are differences. This analogy will break down, but I think it's something like the difference of, of a friend who comes to you complaining to you about you or a friend who goes behind your back and complains about you. On the one hand, the relationship moves forward. On the other hand, for the friend that goes behind your back, that wedge that maybe already exists, that wedge only increases and it drives you further apart. So my question for us today is, what are you doing with your doubts and complaints? Does it drive you further away from God or do your doubts and frustrations and complaints drive you toward him? Again, Habakkuk is this powerful reminder that if our eyes are open, we should have questions. 
And if we actually believe that God is who he says he is, we should have some questions. And Habakkuk tells us that God can handle them, that he wants them from us. Okay, so that's the troubling silence. Secondly, and this is where we keep moving on in our passage, God does answer Habakkuk. And he gives him what I think is probably a more troubling answer than even the silence. The solution that God provides Habakkuk is worse than the original problem. Let's take a look with me at verse 5. This is God's response to Habakkuk's questioning. God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So far, so good, right? Habakkuk's like, I I can't handle the silence. God, when are you going to do something? And God says, oh, you wouldn't believe what I'm going to do unless I told you. Habakkuk's like, this is great. Keep going. What's going to happen? For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. What? (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) I think I misheard you. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. God, your people are a mess. When will you do something? And God's response is, oh, I'm doing something. I'm raising up your enemy. God, when will you do something about your people? I am doing something about my people. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. This was like a, an early way of identifying the people of Babylon. And so can you imagine God's answer to the violence and oppression and idolatry of his people is that he is making Babylon strong. It's really hard to give a good analogy of what this looks like for us. And, and I think this is, this is okay. Now, there are big differences between the United States and a, a theocratic Israel where God truly is, is king over that nation. But imagine praying for the United States. It's something we should do, right? We're all citizens. We all should be praying for our country. We could look at things in this country that understandably grieve us, things that make us very sorrowful. And so we pray, God, when are you going to do something about the United States? And God says, I hear your prayer. I'm raising up North Korea to do my work against you. You'd say, let's just go back to the silence. (laughs) Let's go back to the prayer not being answered. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves. Their horsemen devour like eagles. You hear what God is saying there? He's saying, I see how terrible they are. I do see everything that you're seeing. They all come for violence, a sea of faces. They gather like captives, like sand, scoffing at kings, laughing at rulers and fortresses, as if a wall could keep them out. They are, in verse 11, God says this, they are guilty men whose own might is their God. This is human worldly power at its most godless. Their strength and their power is is their God, and they mock everyone in their way. God sees what Habakkuk sees. God sees the sin and injustice of Israel. He sees the wickedness of Babylon. He sees Babylon's power and might and devastating conquest. And God says, my hands are not in my pockets. I'm readying to use them. Judah has rejected God's righteousness and God's order in their society, and so Babylon's order will be imposed upon it. Remember Habakkuk's cry of violence. Judah has acted with violence among its people, therefore Babylon's violence 
will be its punishment. Judah has rejected the ways of God, therefore it will have to serve the God of Babylonian might. The punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the sin. The violent will suffer violence. God's silence troubled Habakkuk how much more God's answer. He cries out to the Lord that the world is filled with idolatry and corruption. And God says, I'm bringing a people who, let's just be honest, they're more wicked. And they're more corrupt and they're the ones that are going to handle it. The solution seems worse than the problem. How can these things be? Remember, Habakkuk stands in for us. He, he asks the questions that we all have at some point. What are you waiting for? What's going on? He's received an even more troubling answer. And then the dialogue continues and the prophet responds. This is our last point, the, the prophet's troubled faith, the troubled prophet's faith. You see, Habakkuk responds with this beautiful appeal to God's character. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. God, you are the everlasting one. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Do you hear this personal appropriation, this personal declaration of faith? You belong to me. Your promises belong to your people. He calls God the Lord, right? So, so in your text, that's that word, the, the L-O-R-D, Lord, where all of the letters are uppercase. That is the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. It's the name that God gives of himself to Moses. I am who I am. Um, I think the French Bible has kept a beautiful translation because it just switches to the eternal one, which is beautiful. It sets it apart. It's not just the Lord, but rather the one who is who he is. He's the eternal one, but that name is given to a people specifically. This name that draws out all of the promises from generation to generation. To cry out to Yahweh is to appeal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, you are the God of my father and his father and his father. You are the God who commits yourself to a people. And Habakkuk says, that's who you are to me and to my people. You are not just the Holy One. You are my Holy One. Do you see how he's wrestling with God? He goes to God's character. He starts with this foundation of faith. This personal relationship doesn't remove the pain of not understanding what in the world God is up to, but it puts it in context. The God raising up the Chaldeans is the God who makes promises to his people. You could say the real crux of Habakkuk's crisis of faith is that the God raising up the Chaldeans is the God who is for me. Now, we don't don't have this oracle. I don't believe you're going to have an oracle, and I don't think I'm going to have an oracle. I don't think that's how God ordinarily works. But I think this word of Habakkuk is for you and me. This idea that the God raising up the Chaldeans is the God who is for me and is in my corner. And so I can face the diagnosis, which is pretty scary, because I know who God is and he's for me. And I will not die. I can hurt for my children who walk away from the Lord because God, you are, you are my God and you're for me. I can face the fear of the future because I know God is is for me. Habakkuk has no idea what's going on, but he's planting his feet on the rock. You're my Lord, you're my Holy One. 
Habakkuk's objections, his confusion, his questions, they arise because he knows God. Your eyes are the purest. You cannot look at wrong. How can this be? How can you remain silent? I get that Judah has been bad. That's why I cried out in the first place. But it's no comparison. We're better than Babylon. Now we're just like fish exposed to the net of this evil nation. And Habakkuk finishes his appeal. He uses this this military sentry language, right? In in chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to take my stand on the watchtower. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Such a beautiful scene of the life of faith. There's no stoic acceptance of God's providential will. Habakkuk Habakkuk doesn't, doesn't pretend to understand what God is saying. Instead, he wrestles with the God who belongs to him. Sounds just like Jacob, doesn't it? He wrestles. This is a book of faith. Habakkuk teaches us what it means to be honest with God about our questions and doubts. But here's another challenging truth about this book. Um, Honesty with God about our questions and doubts still may not bring us the answers that we want. That's important to hear. There's nothing sentimental about this. God wants us to wrestle with him. He wants us to bring our questions and our doubts to him, but we still may not get the answers that we want. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, uh, has this, this, this wonderful illustration. He talks about the tendency for us to want a Stepford God. He riffs on the movie The Stepford Wives from the 1970s. It was remade into a, a, a film in, in the 2000s. And the, the premise of the movie is that you have the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, who decide to have their wives turn into robots. And these wives will never cross the will of their husbands. A Stepford wife is, is compliant and beautiful, but it's no marriage. There's no intimacy. And in fact, the satire kind of becomes a horror movie at the end. Here's what Keller writes. He says, now what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God. A God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. One of the most prevalent critiques of Christianity and and religion in general, probably most popularized by the the psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud, is that God is just a psychologized projection. We just worship God made in our own image. Now the tragedy is how much of this critique is often valid. That's often what it sounds like. The God of the Bible, who in his holiness and infinity and eternality confronts us, so often is conformed into a God who's just a bigger version of us. Our friends are his friends and our enemies are his enemies. He's gracious toward our foibles, but he hates the sins that we hate. Well, the God of Habakkuk is the God that makes us wait. And he makes us watch. Yet the message of this book and the message of the Bible is not that God is arbitrary. It's that God may not comfort us in the way we want, but he will be there for us in the way that we need. Because he's good. 
and he's faithful. As Romans 8 challenges us, especially when when we are in the throes of crying out how long, is that he is working all things for good for those who love him, even when I am confused and have no idea what's going on. One of the appeals Habakkuk makes is to God as his rock. This is an image of stability and security and redemption. This God is the one in whom we can take refuge. I think we can get an idea of of what it means to be a rock, especially if you are a parent, but also if you are a kid. And we've all been one of the two, right? We know what it's like, at least the idea of what it means to be a rock. Imagine your child is maybe skateboarding on some blacktop and they fall and they skin their elbow. And sometimes those, those are pretty nasty, aren't they? Because it's that real shallow abrasion that, that can be pretty, has that neon blood, doesn't it? And the, and the dirt of, of the blacktop gets all in there and they come up to you and when they're young, the snot's running down and, and like, oh, it just looks painful. And they come to you because why? You are the rock. You are the rock, but part of being the rock isn't just patting their back and patting their hair and telling them everything's going to be okay. You also have to clean the wound. And that means getting out the wet rag, and it also means getting out the no-sting antibiotic spray, which still kind of stings. But what do you say as the rock? You don't say this won't hurt. That's a bad rock. That's a lie. You don't say, well, I'm just not going to do it. That's just not loving. Maybe you ask questions. Do I love you? Do I want to hurt you? Do you trust me? God may not comfort us in the way we want, but he will always be there for us in the way we need. Habakkuk cried out to the God who is the eternal one, the covenant-keeping one, the holy one, the rock, and that's who we cry out to as well. And how much more do we have reason to trust in the goodness of God when the eternal, promise-keeping, holy one, our rock, is crucified for us? How much more do we who live in the shadow of the cross have reason to confide in him? The eternal one became man. The holy one became one of us. The one whose eyes are too pure to look at evil suffered at the hands of evil. He suffered violence. He suffered strife and injustice and oppression for you and for me. What does the cross mean? It means your sins are forgiven. It means that you are a beloved of God. It means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the cross speaks to this crisis of Habakkuk, which is so often ours. That in the face of suffering and confusion and the temptation to lose hope, I can trust in God's love and goodness because I know what he's done for me. I know what he's done for me. You see, in the face of trials and temptations, in the face of grief and sorrow, in the face of suffering, we have such a better place to stand than Habakkuk, our guide. We take our stand not at our watch post, And not on the tower, we take our stand at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, as you have done in your own promises that you've attached to your word and to its being heard and to its being received, Lord, I pray that you would use this word to create faith, that you would use this word to conform our hearts more and more into 
the, the heart of Jesus. I pray that you would use this word to uh, create in, in all of us a, a buttress, a, a, f- a fortress in a world where there is suffering and in a world where we will experience it and a world where we struggle with it. Lord, you are the God whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. On the one hand, it's so fitting that uh, an answer to this great trial that, that we have in, in, our, in our Bibles, Lord, is so perplexing. And yet through our inability to understand, our inability to, to conceptualize and, and to grasp your mind, which I think in many ways is, is refreshing, in many ways is a correction to our own temptation to just create you as, as a, a different, better version of us. And yet, Lord, amidst that confusion, would we see the goodness of your heart? The the sureness of your kingdom? And Lord, would you keep us near the cross? When the enemy uh, tempts us to despair, when the enemy causes us to doubt your goodness and your faithfulness to us, Lord, we, we cling to the cross, knowing what you have done for us. Lord, would you do that work? Holy Spirit, would you seal that word into our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.